The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. If you have your Bibles or your apps on your phone or iPad or any kind of pad you got out there, if you'd open 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11 is where we begin our study. We're doing a study for the fall called Prophets and Kings. We're looking at different prophets as they interface with kings, and so uh, that's where we are in the midst of our site today. We look at probably the most familiar king and prophet. We're looking at David and his encounter with Nathan the prophet. So, uh, Coach, we welcome you guys once again. Thanks for coming to TBC. Uh, it's neat. Uh, Coach Pete and this group, uh, they have learned uh, not only to get to the top, but stay at the top, and that impresses me, and we uh, are grateful for all you guys are doing. So give them another TBC welcome as they are here this Sunday morning. Now we hope you go all the way to the top at the end, right? There we go, yeah. I know what it's like to get beaten in the last game. That's pretty tough, actually. Uh, I get to wear my purple and gold in honor of you guys and my alma mater, and uh, actually Coach gave me this a few years ago, so good to have those guys. If you're new to TBC in the last few months, have not been part of a newcomer's brunch, uh, a couple of times a year we meet at our home. We'd love to meet you so you can meet some of the elders, pastors. Uh, sorry, but you guys are not invited to that at our house next weekend. Just can't fit you. But uh, if you're new otherwise, we'd love to have you. need you to RSVP, and uh, to do that, uh, call the church office. It is an adult-only event, uh, but we do provide child care here, so uh, we'd love to have you to be a part of that as well. Second Samuel chapter 11, Prophets and Kings, a message I've entitled, Caught. Second Samuel chapter 11. By the way, if you have an outline in front of you, it says First Samuel. I must have been sleepwalking. It should say Second Samuel. In the word panic on there, you go down a little bit, the word panic should have a K in it. Uh, I used spell check and it didn't come up, and I don't spell very well, obviously. It happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel. And they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed in Jerusalem. If you write in your Bibles under the word but, underline the word but, circle it, but David stayed in Jerusalem. He had a lot on his mind. It had been a long day. He couldn't sleep. So he got up and began to surf through the channels. There was not much there. So he popped open his laptop and began to surf there. Came upon a picture that uh, he had never clicked on before. It's a picture of a scantily dressed woman. And when he clicked on that picture, it took him to places he had never been before. He was married 25 plus years. Business had kind of smoothed out. It was routine, same old, same old. His marriage was the same. There weren't any major problems, but it was the routine. Same old, same old. Passion had diminished, and they were more roommates than they were lovers. They shared a checkbook, and they shared kids, and they shared a grandchild that was on the way. They shared a house, they shared a home. Their conversations really centered around the weather and where they were going to go for dinner. Life had flattened out for him. Work was routine, marriage was routine, life was routine. He was a man of integrity, a pillar of the community, highly involved in his church. He gave it a little time and even more money. He was a guy who looked down upon folks who jumped the fence, so to speak, and got involved with folks they shouldn't be involved with. And when he began to look at those websites, website after website, initially he was filled with guilt, and then his mind was filled with lust. And he continued to peruse, and it was the beginning of a slide that never stopped. 
One day, he was Facebooked by a high school friend, a gal he had dated years before, and as he uh, got that, he recognized that he wanted to respond. You see, the porn at home had created an insatiable appetite for more of that and less of her, his wife. She was content with that area of their life slowing down. In fact, to her, the sexual relationship was more of a duty than a delight, and it was okay with her. He Facebooked the old friend or responded to the friend request, and then they began to chat online. One conversation led to another, and he hit it all by becoming a little more animated at home, talking about work, talking about uh, the kids, talking about things he enjoyed, but in his mind, he knew what he wanted. Finally, he got up the courage to continue the conversation with his old high school flame, even though it had been 20-plus years before. He knew he wanted a rendezvous if she would meet him, so he threw out the bait And she took it before it hit the water. Sure, she would meet him. In another city, of course, so no one would see them. Just dinner, though, nothing else. And so over dinner, they begin to converse, and she was also in a dead-end marriage. Even though his wasn't a dead-end, he knew there was something missing. And so as they embraced at the end of the evening, tingles went down both of their spines. He knew there would be another meeting. There would be more than conversation at a dinner table. And they met another time, and the unthinkable happened. He used to look in disdain and disgust at people who did what he did that night, and now he recognized that he was ensnared and that he too had been caught. He couldn't give it up. His life became one of thinking of the next rendezvous and also making sure in his mind that the web of lies that he was spinning, he kept separated so he can remember what it is he had lied about. One day, he accidentally left his phone in the living room. He went out to the restroom, and when he was going, a text came through, and his wife never saw his phone, never responded to it, but she picked it up, and she began to retch. See, on the phone was a message from someone. It was about a planned rendezvous the next day, and the rendezvous would be at their house in their bedroom with whoever this woman was. And as he came back into the living room holding up the phone, she began to scream as her head was spinning, Who is it? Who is it? Who is it? Now go backwards in the calendar a couple of thousand years. There were no TVs to occupy the king when he was bored, and there certainly were no computers to look at. But he did oversee the city, and so one day, here was a successful king, a man with a heart after God who had led armies and conquered nations, but life had flattened out. He was probably 40 or 45 years old, somewhere in that time frame when we do the chronology of David's life, and on this day, he was bored. On this day, he should have been at war. On this day, he should have been leading his troops, but instead of leading his troops, he went to the rooftop. When he went to the rooftop, he began to look and see, see the city, actually his city, the city of David. And as he looked out, he saw an amazing sight. He looked out and he saw a, a beautiful lady. The scriptures decided her as beautiful Bathsheba. And if the scriptures call a woman beautiful, believe me, she must have been beautiful. And David watches as her maidservants pour cup after cup of water over her naked body. And he couldn't take his eyes off of this choice morsel. And from the top of his head to the tip of his toes, 
He was intrigued with this woman that he was watching. Little did David know, he had no idea the price he would pay for the sinful choice he was about to make. It would devastate his family and ruin his kingdom. Little did David know about the sinful choice in the midst of unparalleled prosperity under his godly wisdom and leadership, the nation was successful. Little did he know that this sinful decision would cause his kingdom to crumble. You see, on this day, David couldn't sleep. He was successful. Life had flattened out. He had conquered nations. He was respected, admired by people. He was a follower of God. And so before we pick up stones and throw at anyone, we recognize here is David with a man after God's heart who found himself in a compromising position. This is really the story about an embattled king and a bold prophet. It's a story about an embattled king and a bold prophet. You're going to meet a prophet who may be the boldest of all prophets because what he's going to do, he's going to walk into the throne room of the palace of the mightiest man in that country at that time, and it's a king who has blood on his hands and guilt in his heart. But I'm getting ahead of myself there. Let's go back in time. David is a war hero, righteous ruler, spiritual leader, favored by God. In fact, in the previous chapter, it says this about David. It said, the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. David reigned over all of Israel, doing what was just and what was right for all his people. In verse 1, it says, David's men were gone to war. It was springtime. In that day and age, soldiers fought in the springtime. When winter came, because of the weather and the conditions, they came back home to be refreshed and to be refurbished. And so what happened is in the wintertime, they came home, and then in the springtime, they went out, much like the Afghanis do in Afghanistan right now. Take a break in the winter months, and then they come back to war, and they've done that for centuries. That's what happened in the time of David, and that's what's happening here. Springtime came, and in that day and age, generals and kings led their troops into battle. David decided not to lead. David was guilty of sloughing off. Sloughing off. Anybody ever guilty of that? <laughs> you see, what David decides to do is it's a lot better to stay back in the palace than it is to go out into the field and do battle. I mean, he had enough of the MREs and sleeping under the starlight. He decided it was a lot safer to be back in Jerusalem, and, and it was a lot easier to be back there. And so he had a capable general named Joab, and David could rationalize. There were treaties to sign, dignitaries to host, a government to run, so he could stay behind in Jerusalem. Life to David had become a treadmill of the routine. Now, why use the word treadmill? I hate treadmills. It had become very routine. Actually, I recently flunked out of uh, out of uh, boot camp, so they, I, I can't refer to this stuff. You know, if you guys don't know what boot camp is, I can tell you about it. Not the military, the one across the highway over here. I flunked out. I couldn't do it. His life had become a treadmill of routine. And so he looked, and the scriptures say he saw, he inquired, and he took. And what happens to David is is he compromises. He compromises. The scriptures say in verse 2, he was on the roof. He saw a woman. She was beautiful in appearance. He inquired about her. This is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Uriah the Hittite was a soldier in David's army. In fact, if you go to the book of Chronicles, you find that Uriah the Hittite was actually one of the mighty men of David. And then the scriptures very graphically said David sent his servants to get her, and then David lay with her. And so David brings this woman from that he sees bathing, this very beautiful woman. He brings her to the palace, and you have to honor the king's request or you die. And so Bathsheba comes to the palace with no idea what the king has on his mind. 
He didn't, she didn't know if she was coming for a report about her husband in the war or what else was going on. But when she gets to the palace, David has other things on, her, on his mind. Scriptures say that after they had the sexual encounter, then she went back and she was purified, etc. In the next verse, see, initially there was a knock on Bathsheba's door. The king wants you to come to the palace. Now there's a knock on the palace door. There's a message from Bathsheba, and she would like me to give it to you. And David has handed a message, and his head begins to spin, and terror fills his heart. It's just a two-word message. I'm pregnant. I'm pregnant. At that moment, the sweet singer of Israel is singing in a minor key. At that moment, everything in his life began to cascade downward. At that moment, he recognized that he was indeed caught. His mind begins to concoct a plan. He decides he can connive his way out of this one, and so there is a panicked plan in the palace. He decides he'll bring Uriah the Hittite off of the battlefield, and when he comes off the battlefield, surely as a man who's been away from his wife for a long time, he will want to go in and stay with his wife and have a relationship with her, and then it can be blamed that the new baby, the baby that's coming that she's pregnant with, is actually their son and daughter. Uriah the Hittite is much more a man of integrity and valor than David is because when he comes in, he says, if the ark of the Lord is not in Jerusalem and if my soldiers are not in Jerusalem, how can I go and spend the evening with my wife when my men are fighting battles? And so Uriah the Hittite does not even spend the night in his own home. Instead, he stays with the servants outside the palace door. And David realizes this plan has not worked, and so he comes up with plan B. Plan B is he's going to get Uriah drunk at a banquet the next night, and surely in his drunkenness he'll go back to his wife, have a sexual encounter, and then he can say she's conceived by her husband. But Uriah the Hittite doesn't do it. So David comes up with plan C. Plan C is he puts a note in Uriah's hand, and what Uriah does not realize, it's his own death sentence. In the note, he's to take it to Joab, the general over the entire Israeli army. And what it says is, place Uriah the Hittite in the heat of the battle and withdraw the troops. And when that's going to happen, you know what's going to happen to Uriah. His life will be lost. And so the scriptures tell us that's exactly what happened. It says in verse 17, the men of the city went out and fought against Joab. And some of the people among David's servants fell. And Uriah the Hittite also died. And Joab sent and reported to David all these events. David, what happened? A man with a heart after God. Adultery, desperation, and deception, and now murder. God's king? Are you kidding me? And so what we see is this panic plan in the palace utterly fails and is utterly miserable. And after the compromise comes a confrontation. If you look at the next chapter, it says in verse 1, And the God sent Nathan to David. Nathan did not go in his own accord, in his own power. God sent Nathan. By the way, this is unusual. It's unthinkable. Holy men didn't go into the presence of kings in that day and accuse them of these types of things. In those days, kings were the ultimate authorities. If you challenged the king, you died. If you questioned the king, you died. 
If you confronted the king, you died because the king could take who he wanted, when he wanted, wherever he wanted. You read the histories of the other lands in that day and age, of the Egyptians, the Mesopotamians. You read about their histories. You're not going to read about kings who are confronted by holy men because if they did, they died. And they paint their history glossing over these type of episodes. So the question is, why does God include this in his word? I mean, this is God's man, the king of Israel, his chosen people. Why would God do that? Because God is showing that there is an ultimate, there's a more superior king than an earthly king. David is not the ultimate authority. He's a frail man, but there's a faithful king in heaven. He's a fallen man, but there is a faithful king in heaven. He, he, that, that the earthly king is not the sovereign king, but there's a king in authority over the nation of Israel. And they were unlike every other nation. And when their kings fell, they still had a faithful God to turn to. And so the scriptures paint the kings of Israel with their warts and all. They're just a mess. We're going to see in the next several weeks, we're going to see kings that begin to worship idols. And we're going to see kings that have kids killed. We're going to see some nasty stuff from the kings of Israel because God is showing I am greater than even the failed kings of my people. Well, Nathan enters the throne room of David. One author or one artist has painted it this way. Guys, I looked at this. Look at the abs on David in the uh, in the throne room. I mean, that dude is ripped. I don't know who painted that, but, uh, I mean, you, you look at David and you see, wow, that, that's a dude there. But here's the reality. Nathan walks into the throne room of King David. And he's prepared for this discussion. He uses an unassuming analogy. He said, David, there were two men. There was a rich man and a poor man, and the rich man owned many flocks. The poor man owned one ewe lamb. That's it. And this lamb was like a part of his family. In fact, he used to let the lamb drink from his cup and let him eat out of his bowl. He would hold this lamb on his lap like it was his own daughter. And his son and daughter had this one lamb as their pet and no more. They were a poor family. Well, the wealthy man with all the flocks had a friend come from afar to visit him. And rather than sacrificing one animal among all the animals that he had, he sent his servants and he absconded or took, actually, the, the, the one little ewe lamb that the poor man had and slaughtered it to use for dinner for his friend. When David hears this story, he is leaning forward in his throne. Beads of perspiration are popping out on his head. David is a shepherd. His teeth are clenched, his veins are sticking out, and he is mad. So, Gary, how do you know that? The scriptures tell us. If you look at verse 5, it says, David's anger burned greatly. Literally, it says, David's anger made him red in the face. That's how the Hebrew actually reads. He was so mad, his face was turning beet red. How dare this guy take the only lamb that this poor man has when he has a whole flock? And what David does not know, his next words, his next words judge him. David says, this man deserves to die. As surely as he's done this thing, he should make fourfold restitution of what's taken place. His unassuming analogy brings about an uncontrolled response. And that uncontrolled response brings forth an undeniable, an undeniable message. David looks and with his fist clenched and his teeth together and his face being red, he, he says, this man deserves to die. 
This man needs to make restitution. And Nathan the prophet points his finger in the chest of David. And he says, Aish Atah. You're the man. You're the man. David says, this man deserves to die. And Nathan says, Aisha Ta. To you, David. To you. And I can picture, can't you picture David with a thud hitting the back of his chair? I mean, can't you picture him? I mean, he is like an animal caught in a snare. And Nathan the prophet has stuck his sword in the heart of David before David even knew Nathan had a sword. David's at a crossroads. What do you do? Well, the prophet says, David, I want you to know there are going to be some consequences. You can, you can uh, sin the way you want, but the consequences you can't control. Same thing is true for us. You can choose your sin, but you can't choose your consequences. And so, David, here are the consequences. David, I'm the one, verse 7, I am the one who anointed you king over Israel. I'm the one who delivered you from Saul, verse 9. Why have you despised me, David? This is the word of God. So David, because of that, in verse 10, there are going to be three consequences. Consequence number one, the sword will never depart from your house because you've despised me. David, there's always going to be fighting and antagonism within your house. Did that happen? You bet it did. You want to read ahead? Read the next chapter. In the next chapter, one of David's sons is found in a... In a he rapes his half-sister, and then one of the brothers retaliates, and there's murder in the palace once again. You read a few chapters ahead, and the sword does not leave David's palace. He has a son named Absalom. Absalom raises himself up against his father. He, he has a coup against his own dad. Absalom t- goes against his dad. David, Absalom has his own army. And what we find is that Absalom goes up against David. David's men respond to Absalom. We see David crying over the lifeless body of his son. Absalom, Absalom, oh my son, Absalom. The sword never left the palace. Second consequence, David. Not only will you have all this devastation within your house, but here's what else is going to happen. I'm going to take your own wives, and before the eyes of the people, one of your own will lie with them in broad daylight. That's just sick. But you know what? Before Absalom died, if you read ahead in 2 Samuel, he took David's wives, had sexual encounters for others to see. And then you go on, David. Here's the final thing, verse 14. David, the child you have conceived will surely die. David, the child in the womb of Bathsheba is going to die. David, all this you have done will come back to haunt you. You're going to pay a price. There are going to be devastating consequences. David's at a crossroads. What would he do? Would he justify his sin? Would he have Nathan killed? What's he going to do? It's pretty amazing what the scriptures say. As soon as Nathan finished speaking, in verse 15, uh, 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. 
David says, guilty. You know, I wish sometimes we could hear the emotion and see the emotion of a passage. In my mind, I picture this king just weeping. I'm guilty. I'm guilty. God, what have I done? What have I done? Psalm 51 is on your outlines. If you don't have an outline, take a note of it, read it later. It's David's confession. David would sit down and write out a long confession. He says, against thee, the only, have I sinned. He begs God. He says, blot out my iniquities. Cast away these things from my presence. Wash me and cleanse me. And David's confession in Psalm 51 is complete. He leaves no stone unturned. He doesn't justify his sin. He doesn't rationalize his sin. He doesn't deny his sin. He says, guilty God, I sinned against you. Have mercy on me. And the scripture I read at the end of our worship comes right out of Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Let me be different now. Renew a steadfast spirit in me. Don't cast your, me away from your presence. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Well, what do we do with all this? What do we do with all this? Let me draw some applications and I'll close. Let me talk to the men first. All the dudes. Gotcha? Wives, you can hit your husband and wake him up right now. I'm talking to the guys. Here's a great verse. You can memorize it. You can underline it in your Bibles. You can turn there. You can circle it. This is what God's word has to say to us men. I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. Now, I know there's not a guy in here that has that struggle. Right? Sure. Hey, every one of us have that battle. Every one of us have that battle. Single men. You think when you get married that's going to go away? You're kidding yourself. Some guys say, well, when I get married, I won't lust. Right. Right. But here's the reality. It's a great verse. You can memorize it. You can write it down. You can do it. I will not look upon a woman with lust. Guys, don't look upon another woman, a woman that you're, mar- you're not married to, your Christian sister, a woman on campus, a woman wherever you might be lustfully. You say, Pastor, you're crazy. This is the 21st century. We've got friends with benefits. Where are you? I mean, we understand this stuff. Hey, I gave my girlfriend 50 shades of gray just so she could read it. Scriptures say don't be lusting. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said this about lust. He said, if your head's made out of butter, don't sit next to the fire. (laughs) Pretty good advice. Pretty good advice. Let let me put that in 21st century language. You got a problem with pornography, your head's made out of butter, get rid of the internet connection. You got a problem with that, get rid of the cable television or dish or direct or whatever it is you have. I mean, if that's the struggle, you get out of it, get rid of it. The scriptures say it's better to pluck your eye out than it is to be involved in a relationship you shouldn't be involved in. Better to cut your arm off than to do that. You say, Pastor, that's crazy. We're young. I mean, what are you talking about here? I wish we didn't show up on a Sunday like this. I mean, we had a bunch of Sundays to show up. We show up on a deal like this. What are you ranting and raving about? I'm not ranting and raving. All I'm saying is I have seen for 31 years the devastation within so many families it breaks my heart. I'm not angry. I'm sad. I can't tell you how many young men, young women, how many kids I've sat with over the years and said, let me tell you about when my dad walked out the door and never came back and went into somebody else's arms. Let me tell you what it was like when we found out my mom was sleeping with somebody besides my dad. Let me tell you what that was like. 
the devastation that this causes. David had no idea what was going to happen. Guys, quit looking where you should look. And by the way, just because you get older, it doesn't stop. It doesn't stop. Maybe you remember the story. I used it just a few months ago. Two guys, one old, one young, pushing their carts around Home Depot, and they collide. The old guy says, the young guy, I'm sorry, I was looking for my wife. I guess I wasn't paying attention to where I was going. The young guy said, that's okay. It's a coincidence. I'm looking for my wife, too. I can't find her. I'm getting a little desperate. The old guy said, well, why don't we help one another? What does your wife look like? The young guy said, well, she's 24 years old. She's tall, blonde hair, blue eyes, long legs, and recently won a beauty contest. What does your wife look like? The old guy said, doesn't matter. Let's go look for your wife. doesn't stop just because you get old. I'm going to tell you that. I'm getting old. It doesn't stop. Got to have eyes for your wife and your wife only. If not, get on the bus, Gus, make a new plan, stand up off the key lee, and set yourself free. Get out of Dodge. Get out of Dodge. Ladies, let me talk to you. I always hit on men. I mean, not in a bad way. <laughs> that was bad. I'm red in the face now. <laughs> I always beat up on the guys in here. Any guy that comes to TBC knows, man, I'm hard on the guys. But guys, let me tell you something. If men are stimulated by the eye gate, and we are, let me tell you what the scriptures tell you. I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly. Ladies, say the word modest with me. Say that word with me, modest. Modest. Are you dressing modestly for us? Are you? Hey, why would you dress for anyone but your husband anyway? Really. The word modesty. Teach your daughters and your granddaughters about modesty. Beth Moore, the the, the woman teacher, preacher, whatever she is, great teacher of God's word, she says, women, keep your stuff to yourself. (laughs) Keep it to yourself. We did a series two summers ago called House of Cards. you remember we went through this? If you were here, and I did a, a, a basically a 10-minute message on modesty, and I can't tell you, number of women, I saw start to doing this right here. Hey, if you've got to do that, go buy a camisole. Now, by the way, ladies, this doesn't mean look dowdy. That's not what that says. It doesn't mean go look ugly. doesn't mean that. I mean, I, I've said it here a hundred times. If the barn needs painting, what? Paint it. Paint it. This isn't about looking ugly. Okay? Send me your nasty emails. It's okay. I can handle it. This is not about not accessorizing. My wife would die if she couldn't accessorize over here. Man, she accessorizes. We've got drawers full of stuff that she makes. She loves to beat and do all that stuff. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about not being a temptation to other people. And so be modest. Let me give you a couple of specific applications. You're sexually involved with someone you're not married to. Stop it. Stop it. It's sin. Just stop it. Now, I want to backtrack a second. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, this message is not for you. It's not for you. That's just changing your behavior. We're not interested in your behavioral change. We're interested in heart change. When your heart is transformed, then you can obey the Word of God. When your heart is forgiven by Jesus, then you can become His follower and do what He asks you to do. So if you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior, I don't expect you to behave this way. My prayer is that you come to know Christ. Because if you come to know Christ, then you'll desire to behave this way because he who has his commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves him. 
And, and so if you're a follower of Christ and you're involved with somebody else, stop it. If you're dressing for somebody else, stop it. If you can't wait to get to work on Tuesday after having a holiday on Monday so you can talk to somebody and share with them, you're texting somebody, you're friending men. Why would you friend an old boyfriend? Ladies, tell me why. I mean, you're just casting the bait out there. That's all you're doing. Why would you have, why would anybody in here have a secret password from their husband or wife? Why? Why would you have a second telephone? It's because you're hiding. That's the only reason. So don't do it. The word of God is very clear. I recognize to some of you, you're squirming right now because this is your life. The story I told at the beginning, you say, man, Gary, how did you know that? How did you know what I'm doing right? How did you know my life? How did you know what's going on in our home? Because I've heard it hundreds of times. That's how. Some of you have been down this road. You've reconciled by God's grace. I admire that. Some of you in the midst of leaving a husband or wife, you have no biblical reason you're living in sin, period. So don't come and play church. Don't come and pretend it's okay because it's not. Don't sleep with somebody last night you're not married to and come here and raise your hands on Sunday morning. That's a crock. If you don't know Jesus, I'm not talking to you. If you're my folks and you know Christ, quit playing games. Now, here's the good news. God has designed the sexual relationship to be a thing of great joy within marriage. And so I want to end on a positive, not a negative. Positive, not a negative. God has created it so that you can have great joy and great pleasure in your life. In fact, say with me, if you're married, say the word pleasure with me. Pleasure. God has created the sexual relationship for procreation. That's having little ones, if you don't know what that big word means. I would say if you go to a certain school, but I'm not going to start naming schools. It's procreation and protection. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you have a sexual relationship regularly with your spouse, except for a season of prayer. Otherwise, you give Satan an opportunity to invade your marriage. And thirdly, for pleasure. God has given you a sexual relationship within marriage for pleasure. Say pleasure with me. Pleasure. Pleasure. Uh, guys, I want you to say the word romance. Just the men. Romance. Romance. Do you have a clue what that means? <laughs> I mean, really. I meet dudes all the time. I mean, I bring home the bacon and she should be happy with that. And, and you know, you know, date my wife. Are you kidding? We dated before we got married. Man, I, I work all the time. She should appreciate everything about me. I'm sure, let, let me, I'm going to bust your bubble, dudes. She doesn't look at you and say, that hunk of hunk of burning love, I can't wait to have them. That ain't happening. None of you dudes out of college look like these dudes in college. Look at these guys. <laughs> and none of you dudes, you're not going to be that way 10 years from now. I hate to say it. <laughs> I'm just saying, guys. I'm just saying. I was there once, too. Well, not quite like that, but close. <laughs> in my mind, I was like that, okay? But, but here's the cold, hard reality. The cold, hard reality is God has created this for pleasure, for us to enjoy. And, and God does, it seems to me, Satan does everything to bring people together before marriage and does everything to keep them apart after marriage. And God's created for pleasure and for enjoyment within marriage. So guys, romance. Ladies, say the word today with me if you're married. Today. Today. You can't even get it out. 
four guys were gone fishing. After an hour, uh, the following conversation took place. First guy said, you have no idea what I had to do to get away for the weekend to go fishing. I had to promise my wife I'd paint every room in the house next weekend. Second guy said, that's nothing. I had to promise my wife I would build a new deck on the pool. Third guy said, uh, you had it easy. I promised my wife I'd remodel the kitchen over the next month. They continued fishing, and the fourth guy hadn't said a word. And they said, uh, what's the deal, man? He said, it was easy for me. He said, I set the alarm at 5.30 when it went off, slapped my wife on the bottom. I said, fishing or sex? She said, wear plenty of sunblock. So guys, you want to go fishing next weekend? Now you know how, okay? <laughs> when we are willing to expose in the light what has been hidden in the darkness, we know true repentance has taken place. Some of you are living in darkness right now. Your heart is racing out of your chest like David's was. Because you know you're hiding. I'm going to let you in on something. God sees it. You just think you're hiding. God sees it. And it may not be sexual sin. Maybe the sin of unforgiveness, the sin of bitterness, the sin of gossiping, the sin of anger, the sin of jealousy, the sin of coveting. I, I don't know what it is. But God sees it. So if he sees it, why would you not bring it to light and get right, get right with him? Father, we're grateful. We're grateful for the word of God. We're grateful that it's so relevant to read this story that took place thousands of years ago is like reading a story from the pages of the paper today. And Father, we recognize, we recognize that apart from Christ, none of this is possible. Some of you here today, and you're not sure Jesus Christ is your Savior, I want to invite you right now to pray along with me. Lord Jesus, I ask you to be my Savior. I ask for the forgiveness of my sin. I ask for you to come into my life and make me whole. Would you do that this morning? That's called a transformed heart. I'm not talking about coming to church. I'm not talking about religion. I'm talking about an internal transformation by, be for, by being forgiven of the sin that's in your heart. That's what we're talking about. Some of you, you're living in sexual sin. It may be pornography. It may be sleeping with somebody who you're not married to. It may be a homosexual relationship, which is sinful. The word of God is clear. And you need to bring to the light what's being done in darkness right now. Between you and God. Some of you know Christ, but you are bound up. There are shackles that bind your soul because you have not come clean. And it's not sexual in nature. It's something else. Your heart is heavy. Your vitality is being zapped because you haven't gotten right before God. Nathan the prophet boldly entered the throne room of David and said, you're the man. And that encounter brought about confession, repentance, and restoration. That's my prayer for you today. I'm asking you to do something bold. 
bold as Nathan the prophet. You're out there and you're not sure Christ is your Savior and you want to make sure He is, I'm asking you to stand up right where you are. Everybody's head bowed, everybody's eyes closed. You need to make sure Jesus is your Savior today. You're uncertain of that. I want you to stand up. Your marriage is struggling right now. You know it. You know things are not the way they should be. You may even be in the throes of divorce. I don't know what it is. I'm asking you to boldly stand up right now. Pray for my marriage, Gary. Pray for our relationship. We're not where we need to be. Just pray for us. Pray for us. Some of you are harboring sin. It's bitterness. It's unforgiveness. It's anger. It's jealousy. It's not getting your way. I don't know what it is, but but you know that you are struggling. I'm asking you to stand up right now. I want to pray for you. There's sin that you haven't released, and you know it's a battle in your heart. Father, you see all these dear brothers and sisters. And God, I don't know what the issue is. Some of them stood up to to know Christ for the first time. I pray that for them right now. Others have stood up because they want to be unshackled and released from whatever binds them. And I intercede for these dear ones right now. God, with all these folks, every one of us could be saved. In fact, I want everybody to stand right now, wherever you are in the auditorium, everybody stand together. Father, as we stand, we stand in one accord, recognizing that each of us could have stood a moment earlier, that there are times in our life when we desperately turn away from you rather than to you. And so we say to you be the glory, great things you've done, to restore these dozens of folks who boldly stood up and said, I want to be right before you. God, save and protect marriages, save and protect people, save and protect your body. We ask it in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. My prayer for you is this week, you'll look like the Savior and resemble him as you go your way.